nasty, and now this. Already I'm upset. Yeah, taste the rainbow. Her heart grew three sizes that day. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's been here since before Waterloo. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. It's almost funny, really, given the service I once performed for you. That's just vulgar. <laughs> yes, This it is. is no place for discussing <laughs> such things. I don't care what anybody else in this show gets up to. <laughs> Welcome back, cousins. It is time for our recap of Downton Abbey Series 6, Episode 2. That's correct. But before we get into that, uh, we're going to share a telegram from one of our cousins. Ooh. Should you like to send us a telegram, you can get in touch with us at upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, aka Carrier Pigeons. We're at five Maggie Smiths. So that's at five, the number five Maggie Smiths. Or you can search up yours downstairs exclamation point on Facebook. Cousin Chris writes, Hello, dearest cousins. Cousin Chris, your Titanic nerd in Nashville here. I've been waiting for the recaps to start back to call a party foul on fellows made clear in episode one of season six. Okay, so Mr. Mason is losing his farm on the Mallerton estate. However, in season three, episode six, yes, I had to go look it up. (laughs) Mr. Mason asks Daisy to take over his farm or at least move there. The hole in the story comes in with the implication provided by the dialogue that he is a tenant of Downton Abbey and not Mallerton. In the dialogue, Mr. Mason says, there are widows who take on a tenancy and you're liked in the big house. They'll not refuse you. The only house that would care at all about Daisy is Downton. The Lord of Mallerton wouldn't have cared less about Daisy. Therefore, the only insinuation by the dialogue is that Mr. Mason's farm in season three was part of Downton, but Fellows conveniently wrote that out to move along his Mr. Mason plot. Party foul, Fellows. (laughs) Let me know if you feel this is an accurate summation or if I am just being a prat. It's been known to occur. <laughs> Looking forward to the final recaps and following whatever shenanigans the final series of Mr. Selfridge will bring after that. Your devoted cousin, but not the we have the same last name, have sex and get married kind of cousin, cousin Chris. <laughs> I'd also like to point out that the subject line of this email was party foul fellows plot hole ahoy, <laughs> which I very much enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, thank you for pointing that out, cousin Chris, because we had forgotten about that. Right. And I, it did kind of occur to me last week that, wait a minute, wasn't he supposedly mm-hmm. a tenant at Downton? But I just didn't think That was the whole it. reason that William worked there in the first place. Right, you would think. Was that his mother wanted him to work at the big house mm-hmm. and move up in the world. Yeah. And all he got, for his trouble, was dying. Right. Uh, in service of a little, he you got, know, lordling. <laughs> right. He got a bad case of lungitis in the war and, you know, one thing led to another. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, so thanks for pointing that out. That's annoying. Yeah, it is. Because I didn't find that plot super compelling. Uh, but whatever, Baron yeah. Fellows, I guess are. it's your show. <laughs> uh, so thank you for writing in about that. Yeah, so that, that, that would make then Cousin Chris, uh, Cousin of the Week. Yes, oh right, Cousin yeah. of the Week. Mm-hmm. I thought I had remembered all the things. <laughs> nope, there was one more. <laughs> yeah. There's so many moving parts of this podcast. <laughs> All right, so uh, we can just dive right in. I will say, yes. I was talking with another of our cousins, and the only thing that sucks about doing the instant takes, and we may have like discussed this mm-hmm. last year because that was the first year that we did them, we're just not as excited. Like we're right. always more positive in the instant. Yeah, take, and yeah. And then we've had time to sit with everything. <laughs> right. And so you know, 
we apologize for that. that if is, you want to no, hear our, our initial excitement, be sure to go back and listen to the instant takes. Yeah, that's a good point. They're still very relevant. They're like anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes long. Yeah. Uh, they will only enhance your enjoyment of these recaps, <laughs> is what right. we would say. We would think so. And uh, if there's any major discrepancies, I'd be curious to hear it, because I'm not going to go back and re- re-listen to them. No, so. you're not. <laughs> okay, so episode two. We see a bicycle riding up to the abbey. It's about damn time. That's right. Had to wait a whole episode before we saw a bicycle going somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so we get a you know the standard opening shot of various bustling going on. And at breakfast, Lord Grantham announces that Branson has opened a new sale room in Boston, and Mary says that Rose is enjoying New York. So didn't isn't this the same scene we had I think last week? That it is. Yeah. Like, so I don't know what that's about. I don't either. Unless we got two weird versions. But that doesn't make any sense. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Like I feel like there were different people in that scene. I feel I mean, like one was were, a dinner scene and one is a breakfast scene. I know, but it was the exact same plot points that... Well, I, clearly, Baron Fellows can't be bothered to keep track of which plot points he has said or set up <laughs> in total contradiction to other later plot points. That's an excellent point. Like, that kind of behavior is acceptable from us. <laughs> right. The operator owners of this free podcast. <laughs> yes. But come on, he's like, A, a British lord. Right. B, who's getting paid obscene amounts of money for my TV. That's right. I mean, one has to assume. Like, at least get the oracle on it. Like, how does he not have, how does he not own the show Bible? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> it's like the Gutenberg Bible. It's been lost for years. <laughs> Mary suspects that Rose might be pregnant based on, uh, she says something that... She says that she might come back to visit in August, but it's too early to tell. Yeah. And he just like, once again, you add two and two and get 53. I'm like, that's a reasonable, like, what... Like, she just got married. Yeah. She might be pregnant. Right. You're the only one here who's never been married and you got pregnant. Right. It's real easy, as you know. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway. Mary seems to be giving up her widow privileges in this scene oh, yeah. and eating breakfast downstairs. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dowagers ask Lord Grantham to stop by, and Mary asks if, she, if and Mary asks if he's told McGee, but apparently the Dowager asked him not to, and he wants to try to sort things out peacefully. This just seems like a fool's errand. It, it does. Like you can't. You got to pick a side eventually, Robert. Yeah, he doesn't want to. I know he doesn't want to, but yeah. he should. <laughs> Carson uh, says that there's a Mr. Finch there to see the agent. Uh, and Mary says to wait 10 minutes and show him to the library. Why is she having him wait 10 minutes? Like, that dude doesn't know she's the agent. Right. Uh, I guess she's just finishing her breakfast. All right. We'll allow it. <laughs> you know, she just likes making people wait. Lord Grantham says that Mary will have to deal with it as he has errands to run. I can't imagine what they could possibly be. I seem to have forgotten what a shoelace is. <laughs> And Mary says that's fine. She wants it to be her job to manage the Mr. Finches of the world. And Lord Grantham asks Carson about the wedding, and he says that they've set the date, and they just need to decide where to hold a reception. And Mary says, here, of course. Uh, Lord And Lord Grantham is like, yes, we can decorate the servants' hall and make it look real nice. <laughs> and everybody's like, uh. Carson says that they haven't decided, and Edith reminds him that Mr. Finch is waiting. And then, uh, so he heads out and Mary says that surely they can do better than the servants hall, but she'll talk about it later. In the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore is musing that she'll cheat and get a jar of horseradish. And Daisy says, that's not like you. Mrs. Patmore agrees, but 
she says it would make sandwiches easier, uh, which if you're looking at like a knob of horseradish <laughs> right. that you have to, you know, grate and beat into a paste every time you want to make a sandwich. Yes. Yeah, also, couldn't you jar your own horseradish? She, I the... almost did fashion back about <laughs> horseradish for this very reason. So usually she makes it from the scratch. You know, she gets a horse and a radish. And... <laughs> <laughs> when a horse and a radish really love each other. <laughs> Mr. Mosley comes in and asks to borrow some soda, and Mrs. Patmore snarkily asks if he'll be giving it back, which is what everybody says anytime you ask to borrow something. Right. It's like, I'm sorry I was trying to be clever. Yeah. God. <laughs> Everyone's a critic. <laughs> Mosley asks Daisy about Mr. Mason, and Daisy just says that he's lost everything due to her, which is true yeah. and a very bad Daisy impression. Yeah. You'll get there. I hope so. Or you won't. Whatever. Yeah, you know. <laughs> it's the last season. <laughs> this really is like, we've got like massive senioritis. We like, do. whatever. <laughs> Daisy, if that's your real name. Uh, no, and we're like, you know, fifth year seniors at this point. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes comes up and asks Mrs. Patmore if she's got her order ready, and Mr. Molesley volunteers to take it to the village, so Mrs. Hughes thinks that she'll walk down to the home farm, and Carson will join her. Question, what is the home farm? I haven't the slightest idea. Is that like a home fry? (laughs) I don't rightly know. I guess it's where they grow new homes. Did they buy their little cottage or whatever? No. No, they're getting... They were going to get one to retire? They were going to get a cottage. Well, yeah, they were going to get... Yeah, well, they were going to get a bed and breakfast or, like, a place to rent and then retire to, like Patmore did. Okay. And so maybe they did that cause it's just with Carson's money because Hughes couldn't. Right. But but I think they were getting... Because of her sister. Right. That who, uh, is invited to the wedding. <laughs> who's yeah. a real person. <laughs> yeah, she's definitely real. like a cover for <laughs> Mrs. Hughes' lifelong addiction to drink. <laughs> just throw me a boat here, fellas. What is, where's her sister? Is she a Bunbury? <laughs> anyway, I don't know what a home farm is. Yeah. Neither is Tom. That's right. Cousins, <laughs> do you know what a home farm is? Are you at a home farm right now? If so, we want to hear your story. Maybe it's like the farmer's market. <laughs> Mary apologizes to Mr. Finch for being a letdown, uh, being the agent and also a girl. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but Mr. Finch says that she isn't a letdown. Uh, but she won't want to be bothered about the fat stock show. I mean, you know, none of us will want to be bothered about the fat stock show, but here we all are. Like, did she tell him that she's the agent? I, I think she did, yeah. No, cause she, yeah, she said something like, prepare for a shock, Mr. Finch. It's me. And he was like, oh, I'm shocked, but not very expressive. Who's the agent of this estate? It's me. <laughs> it's me. Mary would never be that fun. <laughs> <laughs> Mary thought that fat stock shows take place before Christmas. Mary would be like when Jesse Spano tried to be a cheerleader on <laughs> Saved by the Bell, and she was like, we, all the women of Bayside, raw, raw, and was wearing like an Edwardian skirt. <laughs> anyway, sorry, had to do that. No, that's fine. I'm starting to take everybody away from the <laughs> riveting plot point that is the fat stock show. Well, see, get this. Usually fat stock shows take place before Christmas, mm-hmm, yeah, but this duh. one is not taking place before Christmas. Whoa! It's an experiment. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it could go disastrously wrong. LSD and now this. Just fat stock running amok everywhere. <laughs> like, who can even say? They could call it the wood fat stock. <laughs> Don't. Let's move on. Yeah, let's do that. 
Yeah, so Mr. Finch says it's a changing world related to the fact that there's a girl agent. Uh, but anyway, they're hoping for a decent entry from Downton. So Mary says that she will talk with their pig man. Uh, he says that they don't have the same buzz as a county show, but a decent turnout from the estates means they're still taken seriously, and that is something that Mr. Finch apparently values. Is it like, like the kind of like wrestling matches that take place in high school gyms, you know, like the <laughs> underground ones, like right. the open mic wrestling circuit? This is yeah, no, this is like an underground off the books fat stock show. <laughs> <laughs> like all the pigs are wearing masks to hide their identity. <laughs> Yeah, because they're all on this other fat stock show two weeks later, and they can't (laughs) cross-promote. Mrs. Hughes and Carson are walking to the home farm, or from it, presumably. She is carrying a basket. Oh, yeah. So that supports my theory that she's going to get something. That's a good point. Uh, Mrs. Hughes is not thrilled about the servant's hall idea for their reception. Uh, Which is, yeah. Yeah, it's like Thomas is in there all the time. (laughs) Right. Carson says it was meant kindly and asks what she'd like. Mrs. Hughes says she would like to get away for the day and have their own party. Carson asks if she intends to invite the family. And she says, yes. Was he worried Lady Mary wouldn't be there? <laughs> See, that was a good Mrs. Yeah, Hughes. Yeah, no, that was good. Okay, I can only impersonate <laughs> like three female members of the cast on any given day. Right. It's like Schrodinger's accent. <laughs> Carson says that Lady Mary is an important figure in his life. And Mrs. Hughes says that he doesn't need to apologize. She just does not want to be a servant on her wedding day. Carson asks what he should tell Lord Grantham. And Mrs. Hughes says, just say thank you. But no, it's just like in Felicity Learns a Lesson, (laughs) the American Girl book, where it takes an entire (laughs) book for her to learn how to say, thank you, Elizabeth. I shall take no tea. And I'm sorry if I spoiled anybody on that. But you have had years. You have had like 20 years to learn the end of that book. Yeah, that's a good point. Anyway. Also, when you initially said Felicity Learns a Lesson, I was like, was that a very very special episode of the TV show Felicity? I mean, honestly, every episode of Felicity was a very special episode. Fair enough. Especially for Greg Grunberg. Did she learn lessons Um, Often. Okay. Or, you know, there were sometimes multi-arc episodes multi-episode arcs Mm -hmm. where she would learn a lesson um you know about like not sleeping with your supervisor at the nyu clinic uh or what to do when your roommate gets raped or like why is your one friend sleeping with her ta like that doesn't seem smart but then she finally gets with donald Faison, and everything's fine excellent the roommate does not felicity oh okay yeah 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 none of those seem super relevant to downton abbey i wonder what happened to tangy miller (laughs) She was the headshot example in one of my acting textbooks. <laughs> and well, also a supporting actor on Felicity. Then I assume she's kept getting work. Tangy Miller. What with that headshot? If you're out there, <laughs> let's be best friends. The Dower House, the Dowager Isabel Clarkson and Lord Grantham are conferring. Uh, apparently the Yorkshire Hospital has been canvassing the local donors about their support for the takeover. The Dowager Countess says that that's sneaky, but Isabel thinks that it is sensible. Uh, Clarkson says that there's no government funding available, and uh, then the Dowager says that the local community will forfeit any claims to being treated locally. Lord Grantham... I don't think that's even true. I, I don't think so either. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't particularly. Like, if you need care, you go to, you the, go to the nearest hospital. Right, if you want to. Now, they will also have the option to go of going to York if they want. Yeah, or Rippin. I bet Rippin's got a ripping hospital. (laughs) You would think. City of a thousand hospitals, that's what they call it. 
<laughs> that does seem excessive. Look, d- don't tell me. Tell the city planners of Ripon. You never have too many hospitals. <laughs> or meth. Lots of meth. <laughs> That's why they have to have so many hospitals. <laughs> no, it's it's a vicious circle. <laughs> Anyway, Lord Grantham says that surely it comes down to how many lives are being saved. Clarkson asks if he's implying that they aren't saving lives, and the Dowager says that if he can't say anything helpful, that he should be silent. To be fair, two main characters of this show are dead. That's a good point. Uh, multiple others have died in Dr. Clarkson's care. Yeah. The only person who saved a life so far on this show is Isabel. Yeah, that's true with that aorta thing mm-hmm. or whatever it was. Yeah. Defibrillator? <laughs> no, she had a dropsy situation. Yeah, it was yeah. dropsy, but like she like jacked a thing into somebody. Yeah, I think. Wasn't it that farmer that Edith made out with? No, I think it was a different farmer. You know who I bet would love? Farmersonly.com. <laughs> Edith. That's a good point. She'd be like, oh, I'm just, you know, a simple country girl looking for a farmer. <laughs> to marry slash leave my children with occasionally. <laughs> Isabel asks why McGee is not at this meeting, and the Dowager says that it's not McGee's business, and that they each have a position there, and they have a quorum. Uh, Isabel disagrees, and tells Lord Grantham to tell McGee that the Dowager tried to keep her away. <sighs> LG, you're gonna have to make a decision here. Uh, I, he's not. You know, spoiler alert. Down in the servants' hall, future site of the Carson and Hughes <laughs> wedding, Anna talks to Andy and says that the country's a change from Bayswater, which I always want to pronounce Bayswater, <laughs> which I'm pretty sure is because that's how I pronounced it when I played the uh, Aunt Agatha, Lady Bracknell, in uh, uh-huh. The Importance of Being Earnest. Yeah. Um, anyway, Andy says the country suits him and he might go have a look at the woods. And I'm like, how long have you been here that you haven't gone to see the woods? There's no TV. <laughs> Your job is clearly not demanding. Thomas volunteers to come with and Andy declines. Carson heads out of the room and Thomas asks if there's any more news about giving him his notice. Should he start looking for another job? And Carson pretty meanly says, how could it hurt? Yeah. And Baxter comes up and says, you know, at least they won't let him go until he has a new place. And Thomas is like, uh, that's not what Carson said. Yeah. Like, if you're not at least going to be accurate in your banal or <laughs> observations, Baxter, just don't make any at all. Yeah. No, that's all she does is sort of loom up behind Thomas and say comforting but inaccurate things. Uh, then we see the schoolhouse possible future side <laughs> of the Carson Hughes wedding uh, where the schoolmaster is ringing the bell and Mosley asks him for a word. Yeah. Knowing Mosley, it's probably three words, two of which are mispronounced. <laughs> Remember when Mosley dyed his hair? <laughs> I forgot. These are all real things that happened. <laughs> they were whole plot lines. <laughs> Edith's on the phone with her editor. Uh, it's telling him that there's no point in shouting. They both want the same thing, and she's simply making suggestions, and finally says that she'll be there tomorrow. Uh, she goes into the library, and uh, Lord Grantham McGee and Mary are there, and she sort of explains that she's having editor issues. Uh, and asks about the meeting that Lord Grantham had, and Lord Grantham says what happened, and McGee is still on Isabel's side on that whole thing. So I guess he did tell her. Yeah, he did. That he went. Yeah. All right. Well, you're about 37% of the way to having a healthy marriage, Lord Grantham. <laughs> Lord Grantham says that it's been a plus having their own hospital, and McGee asks whose side Lord Grantham's on, and he doesn't want to decide. 
The kids run in. Uh, Lord Grantham asks about the fat stock show. Mary says she's going to go look at the pigs. George asks if they can come, and Mary doesn't see why not. Edith is concerned lest this simple pig trip reveal her dark secret. (laughs) Simple pig trip. I wish that was a band. (laughs) Yeah. Simple pigs. Simple (laughs) pigs. Simple Pig Plans debut album, Fat Stock Show. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Edith masks her concern by asking if she if they think it's safe to go see the pigs, and Mary tells her not to be a ninny. To be fair, that's a pretty ninny thing to say. Yeah. Edith says she can't come because she'll be in London, and McGee volunteers to go instead and attempt to, like, hurl herself bodily between Marigold and the Drews if necessary. Uh, well, more, I think, to cover Mary's ears of Mrs. Drew shows up. She's <laughs> like, that was my baby. <laughs> Even though it wasn't. Right. But it kind of was. Yeah. It's a complicated... Daisy's cleaning in the kitchen. She's the only person besides Mrs. Patmore who ever seems to really be doing anything. Yeah, they're always, all of their scenes, they're working as hard as somebody getting interviewed in Law and Order. Yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we might have seen him. <laughs> Oscar. <laughs> you think he's hiding something? <laughs> that was a woman, Elliot. <laughs> Sorry, all of my Law and Order references are only for SVU. <laughs> to me, there is no other Law and Order. <laughs> okay. Even though I like Benjamin Bratt. Wow. Mosley says he has something for her, and she says it is a common thing to have a foolish wife. <laughs> what? No, that's Othello. Yeah. Uh, the schoolmaster gave him some old exams for her to study, because he went and talked to him about exams. Once again, not clear what Daisy's going to do with her <laughs> O-levels once she gets them. Uh, yeah. Just go to the University of Phoenix, UK <laughs> edition. <laughs> Mosley found the exams interesting himself, and Daisy wishes that Mr. Mason was settled and suddenly has a cockamamie idea that McGee will listen to her. Right. Uh, in her infinite love of servants being in her sight. Yeah. Mosley points out that they're servants, as I just did. <laughs> yeah. Loath though I am to have anything in common with Mosley. Mm-hmm. But Daisy says she has to do something. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, that was all right. I mean, we have something in common with everybody that isn't Daisy in this Daisy plot line. Mm-hmm. Because they're all like, Which Daisy- is that Daisy is wrong. Yeah. Except they're all like, for Baxter. Well, <laughs> I would rather be on Molesley's side <laughs> than Baxter's. Yeah, that's fair. In a room, Mary asks Anna if everything's okay. She'd expect her to be wreathed in smiles now that Murder Prison has finally died. Incidentally, spoiler alert, Murder Prison doesn't seem to be coming back in this episode. Yeah. I'm still like, Oh, yeah. We've, you know, we've been here before. Right. So. We've got PTSD as far as. Like, the is she eventually going to have a baby concerned. and it's going to come out and be like, yo, I know what? <laughs> well, it'll be arrested. Hi, <laughs> hey, we have to arrest your baby. <laughs> we think it murdered a chicken. <laughs> it's a serious crime. Christ. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, Sam Neill. Yeah. Of Peaky Blinders. I feel like we made a Grace reference last week as well and did not perhaps explain to people. Oh, yeah. On our Peaky Blinders (laughs) podcast family meeting, we have made much fun of Sam Neill's Northern Irish accent, which by all accounts is extremely accurate. (laughs) Yeah. But we are going to keep making fun of him and the good people of Northern Ireland. (laughs) That's right. Sorry, everybody. 
Anyway, uh, Anne says, Anna says that life is never simple and that it's almost funny given the service she once performed, but it seems she can't have children. Like, given the fact that you picked up somebody else's birth control because she's a punk ass bitch. Look, you know what? That's Alanis Morissette irony. Okay? (laughs) That's not real irony. Agreed. Mary says that she's not surprised Anna's been having difficulty, what with the emotional turmoil she has been in. Uh, But Anna says, nope, it's that she can get pregnant. She just can't keep it. Uh, and Mary is like, yeah, so again, you've been very stressed out. And Anna's like, nope, can't have a baby. I've decided. Great. I'm yeah. sure that's the last we'll hear of that. <laughs> right. Isabel sees Murdy. Murdy. <laughs> Murdy. Ah, uh, Murdabelle. He's a Mert. <laughs> Uh, he's coming out of the post office and he says he's no good at delegating, presumably why he's at the post office. Right. Uh, and he's glad to see her. He's been asked to chair the board of donors for the new hospital, which... So I, do they not need to vote at all? Uh, I guess I think what's happening is that the Royal York County Hospital is basically just assuming that this is a done deal. Yeah. And, you know, neither knows nor cares. You can cares. get a lot done not asking people about stuff. Yeah. Um. Anyway, he'll be working with Isabel uh, on this board of donors. And he says that he thinks they'll be more efficient when they combine because their x-ray machine is outdated and they don't do advanced surgery. And she says the battle lines are drawn and they must fight it out. So here's my question. Yes. If they don't do advanced surgery, don't people have to go to York anyway? I would say so, yes. So nothing is going to materially change except that the local equipment is going to improve. Right. Yeah. So if you need to get your appendix out or whatever, I don't know if that counts as advanced surgery. Right. But so if you need advanced surgery mm-hmm. and it's not an emergency, mm-hmm. in which case I would assume that you're pretty screwed. Right. In which case you just die, I yeah. guess. You yeah. still no, have this to is, go to York. That's absolutely right. No, there's no – the only things that will change will be that, you know, the Dowager Countess and Dr. Clarkson will have their feelings hurt. Well, and I'm not going to deny that I think this is a po- – like when this kind of thing comes up, there's always some idiot yeah, yeah. who wants to fight the tide of progress. I just question whether or not we should be spending this much time on this. I also question it that. It is the last season. <laughs> this is the last one. I know. This is this is it. Yeah. There's only so much time left. You want to but- go out with a bang or a new x-ray machine? <laughs> At any rate, uh, Isabel says the battle lines are drawn and they must fight it out, despite what we just said. Right. Murdy says he's glad they're allies and Isabel ignores that he says this. Mm-hmm. He supposes the Dowager is still opposed and Isabel says yes, so there'll be wigs on the green before we're done. Uh, which apparently is a thing people say. Yeah. I guess it's like snatching wigs off. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, real housewife style, but I, you know, yeah. nobody's wearing a wig. No. That we know of. <laughs> Jaunty caps, sure. Right. You know, mostly stopped dyeing his hair, so I don't even know. And the servants hall mostly tells Baxter that Daisy's all worked up, uh, and thinks that McGee might be able to help her situation. Baxter doesn't see how. Mostly asks if Baxter can ask McGee, and she says, well, the most she can do is she can say that Daisy is worried. Thomas, who just walked in, tells Baxter that she shouldn't get involved. And he says, she's like, oh, well, you don't like helping others. And he's like, well, I'm trying to help you, which is a solid uh, rejoinder mm-hmm. there. He reads a job listing for assistant butler, varied duties, start at once, which is in Ripon. Baxter says it would be nice if he didn't have to. City of a thousand duties. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Baxter says it would be nice if he didn't have to move far, and he says, nice for whom, which, not sure what that's about. Well, he's saying, you know, no one likes him. 
Right. So it doesn't matter where he moves. No. She says that he won't let her be fond of him. And then Andy comes in looking for oil because he's about to wind the clocks. And Thomas, I mean, naturally, volunteers to help. This is, you know, the moment he's been waiting for. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But he is rebuffed. Andy thinks he can handle it himself. And Thomas asks what an assistant butler is when it's at home. Uh, I don't know. What's an underbutler? Like, like your title makes so much sense. I know. Anyway. McGee at Pig Farm admires the pigs. (laughs) Yes. Pigman agrees that it's a fine pig and asks if Edith knows they're there. Mary says she's in London and McGee asks where Mrs. Pigman is. And he says that she's in town, but she'll be back soon. So McGee wants to boogie. Yeah. Because she's like, nothing good will come of this. <laughs> but Mary asks if Mrs. Pigman will want to see Marigold because Mary doesn't know Ooh. about Edith the baby stealing wonder. <laughs> right. Mrs. Pigman walks in right then and says she would. And McGee looks on warily as Mrs. Pigman crouches down and looks at Marigold, uh, noting any places she could be snatched. <laughs> McGee says that they need to get back for luncheon. She says luncheon! She does, yes. You guys, <laughs> this is the most exciting thing that happens. It's all uphill from here. <laughs> Pigman drags Marigold away from his totally sane wife. <laughs> and Mary says that she'll send a note to Mr. Finch that, yes... The pigs will be in the show. <laughs> right. And all the pigs are arguing. They're like, Pigman, I want to be in the show. <laughs> They're all arguing over who gets to be first pig. Mm-hmm. In the servants' hall, Carson leaves, and then Thomas chases him down and asks for the afternoon off for a job interview, and Carson says to be his guest. Baxter wishes Thomas good luck, and he says that if he was lucky, he wouldn't be leaving. I mean, you're just not happy in general, dude. Yeah, so, like, true. I don't know. He's just crabby. Mm. Maybe he's PMSing. <laughs> In the library, Lord Grantham asks how the pigs were and if Mrs. Pigman was there. Mary says that she was and she enjoyed seeing Marigold. <laughs> Carson announces the luncheon we heard so much about. <laughs> That's right. Mary tells him that when Lord Grantham suggested the servants' hall, he wasn't really thinking. and they Much could like have... when he makes every other statement. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> oh, I'd jolly love to invest in another railroad, Carson. <laughs> Do you know any? <laughs> he lost all of his money (laughs) investing in that railroad it's true (sighs) which makes me feel like the estate agent wasn't doing his proper job i was more he had a financial advisor that like allowed him to do that's the one that i miss who is their solicitor murray yeah yeah he was the walrus he was (laughs) that's right (laughs) I guess we are going to have to do this rewatch at some point. Yeah. Just to remember all the insane crap we made up over the years. We'll have to consult our Gutenberg Bible. We will. Mary is saying that, of course, they can have the reception in any room that they choose. And I'm like, how many rooms are in this house? Because I feel like we only see five. Yeah. It's a big building. That's true. Uh, Carson says that that's very kind, but McGee, being the American judge of good manners that she is, mm-hmm. is that they must feel free to refuse. Uh, Carson says that that's unlikely, but McGee says to ask Mrs. Hughes, and Mary is like, why would she feel differently? And McGee's like, it's her wedding. Yeah. No, she, cause what she says, she's like, she just might. Like, you know, that's all. Carson tells Lord Grantham that he'd have been happy in the servants' hall, <laughs> but Lord Grantham says that there's no point in pretending that either of them can argue with Mary. No. Anne is crying, and not just because she's in the boot room. In the boot room! <laughs> in the boot room! <laughs> Excellent. 
Uh, Bates comes in and says that it's not right for her to cry alone because they are married. And she doesn't have to cry alone anymore. Ugh, I love crying alone. I don't care about you. <laughs> All right. Uh, then go for it. I'm not going to do it now because well, you're here. I am. Cramping your style. Mm-hmm. My cry style. <laughs> My cryle. <laughs> And it says that she's told Mary about uh, the you know miscarriages, and Bates asks if she's thought about adoption. Anna says that she doesn't think that would work for Bates. He wants his own child. She says that he's tribal, and I'm like, when has he ever spoken to another human being that wasn't you, Vera, or a police officer? <laughs> right. I agree, but that's what Anna thinks. Uh, but Bates asks what Anna wants. When, when she says that you want your own child, and he's like, well, what do you want? And she's like, aha, you don't deny it, which, all right. Anyway, Bates says that they must learn to be content as they are. Anna says that it's her fault, and Bates says to him, no, to him, they are one person, and that one person can't have children. That doesn't seem like it's actually helping the situation. I mean, it doesn't necessarily, but I think, you know, I think Bates is pretty solid in this scene, one of the rare times that he is. Because mm-hmm. Anna is being a little bit ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings us to our first recurring segment, Fashion Backwards, with our very own adoption advisor, Kelly. I'm excited about this one because I was going to do horseradish. I was like, that's not going to be very long or informative for anybody. Just the horse and the radish. The horse. The horse and the radish. It's like borscht, but made of horse. Horscht. Um, Okay, so I learned a lot thanks to Jenny Keating who is the author of a book called A Child for Keeps, The History of Adoption in England, 1918 to 1945. Mm. And also where I got all of this information, a paper called Struggle for Identity, Issues Underlying the Enactment of the 1926 Adoption of Children Act. Hey, guys, it's not Wikipedia. Woo! I could write a Wikipedia page using this information. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do that. No, that seems I don't have that kind of time. Yeah. Uh, or know how that page works. <laughs> right. Anyway, so up until the year 1926, adoption was completely informal. There was no legal basis in the UK for adoption, except for those that were, except for the kids that were placed under the 1899 Poor Act. Mm. And the Poor Acts are a whole other, yeah, a whole other segment of fashion backwards. <laughs> yeah. Actually, really, Tom repeats history. Yeah, um, which basically. It, you know, it started in like the 1500s mm-hmm. and was like welfare, but with a big question mark. <laughs> right. Because it's this system under which the workhouses mm-hmm. evolved. Yeah. And it was basically, you know, that whole, you know, work, you know, will make you free type thing. Right, where right, it's like, right. oh, well, let's make these poor people do stuff, but like still not give them any money. Mm-hmm. Because whoever wrote these laws clearly did not understand that the only way to not be poor is to just get money for no reason. <laughs> right. Anyway. So there were some legal restrictions there in the cases of children who were removed from their homes because their parents were unfit, um, which I could not actually find an 1899 Poor Act on Wikipedia, hmm. so we're not going to talk about it. Good. It might actually have been the 1894 Poor Act, but I'm pretty sure it said 1899 in the actual paper. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, Jenny Keating, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> hit me up. Yeah. Let's be best friends. <laughs> so nobody cared much. 
that adoption was informal. <laughs> sure. So, hey, there is some historical accuracy in Edith's uh, international baby snatching <laughs> schemes. Um, but after World War One, there were a lot of concerns about the independent agencies who were doing a lot of adoption placements mm-hmm. and also overwhelming public concern about the uh, practice of baby farming. Well, baby farming. If anybody has read the book uh, Fingersmith by Sarah Waters, who also wrote The Paying Guests, which we talked about before, uh-huh. um, baby farming, people got really like, already. I'm upset. You should. <laughs> so it's you know unsavory, shady characters who would take you know an illegitimate baby or what have you. I don't know, like a cat. (laughs) They would take, you know, if you had a baby you didn't want, an Mm -hmm. inconvenient baby, they would take the baby for some kind of fee. And the understanding was that they would dispose of the baby somehow. Mm -hmm. So there was concern that these people were murdering the children outright, neglecting them to death, Mm -hmm. and then they were literally selling them to other people. Yeah. um, Which was... Like, it wasn't exactly illegal. Mm-hmm. Like, you could mm-hmm. pretty much sell a baby. Uh-huh. Um, you couldn't kill them, but you could sell them. Mm-hmm. So people were really concerned about that. Um, but then after World War One, there's this huge increase in people who are outright orphaned or children who are outright orphaned, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, illegitimate kids as the result of, you know, flings with soldiers and just what general have disruption. You. Yeah. Um, and then. A lot of women who were poor and, you know, either lost their husband to the war or other causes, not having the resources to care for their children. Mm -hmm. Um, Not only that, people who had been kind of informal foster parents, so like baby farmers, but like more of a collective, Uh (laughs) more of like a worker-owned collective. Right. People who, you know, were known to like care for these kids, they found better work in shops and factories and offices. Mm -hmm. So it's the same issue that you see below stairs where they're like, oh, hey, watching these poor people's kids, that's not where the money is. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So there were people, the people who wanted to adopt – um, were, you know, couples kind of looking to replace sons that they lost in the war. Mm. And then also there were just like random single women mm-hmm. who were like, uh, clearly I'm not getting married. Give me a baby. <laughs> um, right. So these agencies were the national child, uh, national children's adoption association and the national, I knew I should have written this down. <laughs> uh, and the National Adoption Society. Okay. So these were basically nonprofit organizations that existed uh, to collect – collect also sounds terrible mm. – you know, to take children from their bad situations mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. place them with parents. Yeah. Um, they were maintained through a system – uh, voluntary donations, yeah. uh, italics theirs. <laughs> um, and then the NCAA was the more prominent one mm-hmm. because it had a lot of really high profile patrons who were giving a lot of money and, you know, mm-hmm. promoting and championing the organization. Sure. It was started by a Miss Clara Andrew, uh, who, as far as I can tell, was cuckoo bananas. <laughs> yeah. Um, she didn't care very much about getting kids out of a bad situation. All she cared about was that childless adults could have a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. that was her only concern. Gotcha. 
And so she was one of the people who was pushing for a legal basis for adoption, not again for protection for the kids, but so that the childless adults who adopted these children wouldn't be faced with the natural parents of the children coming back to reclaim them when it became economically uh, viable for them to do so. Right. Like, or just on a random whim. Or on a random whim. Yeah. But I mean, so yeah. Uh-huh. Lady <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's you know, it was, but it was more about like if your child uh-huh, uh-huh. got to the age where they could be employed, right? Then you'd be like, oh, why? Come <laughs> on back, we've got a pig farm for you. Yeah, that's more of like a, a drunken McGin type situation yeah. too. So, in 1920, the first parliamentary committee on adoption convened under the guidance of Sir Alfred Hopkinson, and. According to Parliament, the biggest issues were not uh, having a legal basis for adoption to prevent people from stealing their kids back or even preventing baby farming, Uh which, to be fair, the threat of baby farming was far more sensationalized Mm. than the real issue. However, there were several very (laughs) high-profile cases where you're like, you really, really should be working on making sure that's not happening. Yeah, yeah. Their issues were uh, the procedure by which adoption was legal. Mm -hmm. So whether it was something that had to be presided over by a magistrate versus an interpersonal contract. Uh uh Um, And whether or not inheritance factored in it all. Of course. So this is one of the most British things I've ever heard of. (laughs) So in the... How How does this affect entailments? Exactly. Yeah. Um. So... They did in 1926 pass uh, the Adoption of Children Act, which requires a legal process, you know, and Uh it's a really weird piece of legislation, though, because so the morality of the situation fed into it in some very strange ways. Okay. So in the 1920s, people were actually pretty much fine with illegitimate mothers raising their children. Mm -hmm. They were like, okay, this lady got knocked up. If we take her baby away, then for whatever reason, that's going to cause her to like relapse into fornication and she's just going to have another one. Right. Well, because Um, I mean, because that's, you know, women are either going to be maternal or sluts. Like, mm-hmm. so that makes sense. Well, but I mean, actually what this presupposes <laughs> is maybe they can be both. <laughs> um, so there was all of this like secrecy encouraged around adoption that wasn't actually supported in the legislation mm-hmm. because it basically violated the tenets of English common law. Um, and that had to do with the inheritance piece of it. Okay. Um, and basically saying if a child is party to an inheritance, they deserve to know that. Mm. But all of the agencies were so vehemently lobbying behind the scenes that there was no language written into the act Mm -hmm. to ensure uh secrecy or you know prevent it okay and there was no there was no opposing lobby okay there was nobody running around being like hey maybe uh, these (laughs) kids should know where they came from (laughs) right um and it took until 1975 Mm. before birth certificates for kids who were adopted were basically like because you know other legislation was passed Uh, uh that basically made it impossible Mm. and it wasn't until 1975 that those birth certificates were like unsealed Mm -hmm. so that's crazy yeah so like there were a lot of people who got adopted and that was the other thing actually was the question of legitimacy Mm. um so a lot of parents wanted you know adoptive parents wanted to reserve the right 
to lie to their children and say their parents were dead versus uh-huh. they were the product of an illicit union. Sure, sure. Um, and that was just, that was this huge, huge concern. Yeah. And there was not a concern about having a two-parent household. That didn't come into vogue until after World War II mm. as all these families are moving to the suburbs. And these are sort of like working class people who have moved up a bit. Uh-huh. Um, wanting, you know, to essentially have, you know, the kids and the picket fence and stuff. Right, right. And the, just the, the attitudes just changed completely after the war that you had to have two parents, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which is how you wind up with the Magdalene houses and whatnot. Yeah. But mm. that's a different episode. That sure is. Now I will say what these, um, adoption agencies did do that was really admirable. They did advocate very strongly for hostels and homes for unmarried mothers. Mm. Um, and they were, Actually, even though they wanted like as many kids as possible uh-huh, uh-huh. to, you know, give to these barren adults. Right. Um, they were, they were also very much of the opinion that a mother and child should not be separated if at all possible. Okay. So yeah. it's this really weird yeah. mix yeah. of attitudes mm-hmm. about how best to raise children. And I found it fascinating just how different the attitudes were because yeah, once yeah. the attitude shifted that unmarried mothers were unfit i mean that's still the prevailing wisdom yeah is that if you're yeah. an unmarried woman you better try to get married right, right i mean i think you know the stigma isn't as strong as it once was yeah but it's still the basic idea yeah yeah and uh i mean it you know it wasn't you know it was really it was just not ruining you at this time mm-hmm. in the same way that it would ruin you in yeah. previous years yeah no. Like, I'm sure it wasn't great for you sure. if you were a noble person, but if you're like a middle class person, it's just like, yeah, I just have this baby, mm-hmm. which I mean, on the real is probably how it's been for most of history because well, right. middle class and lower class people don't have time <laughs> to be all like, oh, well, right, right. you know, people get mad about it for like a month and then it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So that was fashion backwards. Uh, yeah, a little bit more historical than usual. I'm horning in on your territory. Yeah, I guess you are. Yeah, I am. Next week, it's just going to be all me. (laughs) But you'll still have to edit the podcast. (laughs) Well, that seems fair. Everything I do is fair. (laughs) It doesn't actually, Um, but that's okay. Everything I do is fair. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, all this is to say... In the year 1925 and years, you know, 1923 intervening totally plausible that edith could have just been snatching this kid back yeah yeah there was no there was no law about it and if it were brought to court uh the court would have sided with her Mm. and said this kid has an inheritance yeah uh it goes with its natural parent yeah yeah but again not likely to be brought before any court at any point which does explain why you know she never has any issues Uh uh-huh with all of this yeah yeah okay yeah uh so yeah they got they got something right apparently yeah good job yeah i think it was an accident (laughs) i honestly do (laughs) parent julian's like the adoption of what act (laughs) children (laughs) never touch the stuff (laughs) well thank you kelly you're welcome it was fun to research Mm -hmm. in edith's editor's office he is yelling at her and rosamond who is there to meet edith can overhear quite clearly uh, he says that she may have read magazines while getting her hair done or while she's at the dentist, but that doesn't mean she knows how to produce them. I think that I could produce a perfectly cromulent issue of highlights. Thank you very much. <laughs> Aida says he doesn't have to shout so much because she's not deaf, but the editor is not sure that she isn't deaf. 
Um, anyway, Rosmond awkwardly chats with an employee about the weather, as they both can <laughs> clearly hear this argument. And then Edith comes out, and Rosamond says that she can come back after lunch, but Edith says that there's no point. Uh, Edith adds that Mary took Marigold to Pig Farm, and Rosamond asks why she didn't stop that from happening, but Edith asks how she could have. Rosamond says that she'll have to tell Mary one day, but Edith doesn't see why. Uh, and also fills Rosamond in on all the hospital trauma. I mean, you might have to tell her if these, you know, field trips to Pig Farm become a regular <laughs> thing. George seems to like the pigs. He does seem to like them. They're his pigs. <laughs> Thomas walks up to a manor, presumably the place he is interviewing for a job. Mm-hmm. We think the butler I mean, is interviewing would, him. You would think that would be... He's never would, named, yeah. but Thomas explains his experience and says it seems like the right time for a move. Which I have also been on job interviews, and I've also been saying it seems like the right time for a move rather than I'm getting kicked out of my job. <laughs> So I felt for him in that, that uh, particular and moment. And it did work. I did get a new job. Just yeah, in case which is very exciting. Yeah. If we sound more chipper, that's <laughs> why. Thomas asks what an assistant butler is. And the butler says that they made it up. And Thomas will have to climb down from his high horse, which... Thomas can be a jerk, but he's being he's totally in job interview mode here. Right. This is not an issue. Yeah. Anyway, this guy says he'll be a footman slash occasional chauffeur slash valet. And Thomas says uh, it's a job for a one-man band, <laughs> which is the kind of passive-aggressive thing you say when somebody wants you to do a ridiculous thing. Yeah. The butler then takes a moment, says Thomas is a delicate-looking man, which I'm like, no, he's not. He's not particularly. And pointedly asks why he's not married. And Thomas says not many footmen or butlers are married. The butler says he is. And they'll let him know. Which is like, how finely tuned is your gaydar, dude? Apparently it's exceptional. Because Thomas does not, you know, he doesn't come off, you know, like... Well, and even if he did, like, it wasn't a widely acknowledged condition. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, there's yeah. no reason anybody should be suspicious. Yeah, yeah. People weren't just going around being gay back then. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, it's, it's not like he's, you know, Sebastian in Brideshead Revisited yeah. or anything like that. He's just... He's just a random bloke. Yeah, so that that was... And, like, on the one hand, I appreciate Julian Fellows suddenly being like, oh, yes, it should be hard for Thomas to be gay once in a while. But I that was just out of nowhere. don't appreciate... I appreciate that if it made any sense. No, yeah, like I said, I appreciate the thought. I just think that this was just a ham-handed way to do it. That, you know, it's just in his, his file. <laughs> right. Under Thomas problems. <laughs> he has a difficult time getting a job because he's gay. <laughs> like my gay brother-in-law. <laughs> His brother's like, Julian, (laughs) you know he's never had any problems getting employed. (laughs) Yes, but I imagine he has. (laughs) What if Julian Fellows and George R.R. Martin got together ever? (laughs) Like, I just can't think of two creators of a thing (laughs) that people latched onto and just loved. Yeah. Who have so just torpedoed all of the goodwill <laughs> that they had built up because no and it's like because like george R. R. martin just came out with that thing about oh you know it's hard to write and i'm like you're writing a made-up derivative <laughs> story dude just yeah. write it yeah. we don't want anything else what other Listen, crap are you you're doing like, you're like he was like yeah you know i wrote some stuff but i really didn't like it and i had to go back and revise it i was like Nobody liked books four or five either. Just crap something out, no, dude. I, no, no, I'm just like, 
Don't you think you're talented? You just got lucky. No, no, they both meet each other and they're both like, boy, it's really hard to keep going once you run out of story, isn't it? And they're like, well, yeah, no, I know. And I mean, honestly, I would respect George R. R. Martin way more if he was just like, if he was just like, you know what? Nah. <laughs> these guys, these HBO guys, they got it going on. Yeah. Get, you know, the person that does the Star Wars novelizations <laughs> to like take my notes and clean them up. Yeah. And he could just hold a press conference where all the nerds could ask their questions and he could be there like this, this, or like, I never got around to figuring that out, you know? Yeah. And that would be that. I never understood why anybody liked that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Right. <laughs> that was just a typo that nobody ever caught. <laughs> Anyway, right. sorry for that tangent. Where <laughs> sure. were we? Uh, in Mary's room, Mary tells Anna that George has decided he wants to be a pig farmer when he grows up, which technically he will be. Can he speak? <laughs> that is... Oh, wait, he did ask he, Mr. Barrow for a... For a, a piggyback, piggyback ride. Yeah. Okay. Right. So he... But, like, he's very mumblecore. He is. <laughs> he is. He's a very mumblecore baby, and I'm like, this is the best Britain's babies have to... Like, come on. Is there a better gig for a baby? Except for being Prince George or Baby Charlotte. Mm -hmm. Princess Charlotte, whatever. Sure. You know, I call her Baby Charlotte because we're friends. (laughs) That's No, but if... Well, and also we're Republicans. Yeah. Apart from being a royal baby, (laughs) is there any better gig in England than being one of the babies on Downton Abbey? You wouldn't think. I don't know. Maybe it's just like the kids of like Baron Fellas' friends or something. I you feel know? like it is. Yeah. Because they have to have like a baby Juilliard over there. Right? At least a Jimboree. Like I've definitely seen stronger baby acting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like it's not just their age. Like yeah. that baby on Raising Hope. Yeah. Although she didn't age well. Well, yeah. She got to about the age these kids are and we were like, ugh. Yeah, that's true. Replace that baby. <laughs> anyway. If you're listening to this, babies, we don't blame you. You're only babies. Yeah, we blame your parents. That's right. Uh, and yeah, and Mary goes on to say that Mrs. Pigman was upset at seeing Marigold, which surprised Mary. She thought it would be a nice gesture, but perhaps she was being insensitive. Which is, wow, Mary's, what? Her heart, Mary's- her heart grew three sizes that day. <laughs> it was the pigs. <laughs> pigs! Pigs will bring us together! <laughs> Uh, she then asks Anna to let her help with Anna's pregnancy issues. Anna says there's nothing to be done, and Mary's Based like... Based on no information. Exactly. Because I was thinking about this. At this, like, it, you know, it's not like you could go in for a preliminary, like, pelvic exam necessarily and mm-hmm. be like, hey, Dr. C, right. is my uterus jacked? Right. Uh, you were just like, oh, maybe I'll get pregnant. Yeah. And, like, that was it. Yeah. Uh but uh, Mary is going to show her a new way. Uh, she <laughs> reminds Anna that she had a similar problem, and it turned out all she needed was a tiny operation. So she's going to take Anna to the doctor in London on Harley Street that she had gone to. Anna says that she couldn't accept that, but Mary says that she's earned it. Quote, keeping my secrets, hiding that fearful Dutch thingamajig, carrying poor Mr. Pamuk down the galley in the dead of night. And they both laugh. And this is like one of the few like fleeting moments of the show being self-aware yeah um but it's pretty great poor mr pamuk oh man he was so attractive he was and then all he got out of it was that stupid divergent series <laughs> i mean i guess again compared to my life that's probably <laughs> awesome yeah, that's a good point so mary will make an appointment with the doctor and anna thanks her and she asks if anna will tell bates and anna says she's not going to tell him yet McGee asks Baxter how she could help about Mr. Mason because the new owners are going to do what they want. 
Baxter will tell Daisy not to talk to McGee about it. And McGee's like, yes, I don't see how I can help. Lord Grantham bumbles in <laughs> and asks who she can't help. She explains. Lord Grantham then agrees. So once again, super glad we had that 15 seconds of dialogue. <laughs> uh, Lord Grantham asks McGee what she wasn't saying about pig farm. McGee says that Mrs. Pigman hasn't gotten over Marigold, which I would suggest they go to her house and play Taylor Swift's. We are never, ever, ever getting back <laughs> together to her. Uh, Lord Grantham says that they shouldn't have taken the kids down there, which you didn't say anything before bucko. Mm-hmm. Uh, McGee says there was no way to avoid it except for not taking them. Well, I mean, I guess she means she'd have to be like, Mary, <laughs> we have a very good reason not to take Marigold to the pigs. <laughs> um, She's been having nightmares. <laughs> we let her watch Spirited Away. <laughs> Lord Grantham wishes Edith would just tell Mary about Marigold, but McGee says that Mary would use that as a weapon because apparently Lord McGrantham has not been present for the past five years. (laughs) Yeah, that is apparently true. She wishes the Druze would move away, and Lord Grantham is like, they've been there for over a century. McGee says that woman won't forget Marigold while she's nearby, and Lord Grantham says that he'll speak to the pig man, although he's not sure what good it'll do, which I feel like should be his catchphrase. (laughs) Anything that he ever does, he's like, oh, I guess I'll stop drinking wine. I don't know what good it'll do. (laughs) That is, no, that's a good point. In the servants' hall, Baxter asks how Thomas's interview went. He says, not well, and explains all the tasks they wanted. And Baxter correctly surmises that the salary did not reflect all those varied tasks. Which I'm not totally sure that makes sense, because they at this time there were so few servants, mm-hmm. people were paying a premium. That's like, true. Like, we just heard Lord Grantham in the last episode say that the staff bill is three times what it was before the war. Right. But I think that that also means that, you know, Thomas is probably, it probably means that Thomas is getting paid well in his current position. Uh, okay, so, that makes sense. You know, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Thomas leaves and Mosley says that he doesn't know why Baxter bothers with Thomas. Uh, and then Daisy says that so she can't speak to McGee and Baxter unwisely says that McGee didn't say that because McGee was trying to be British and polite. And not explicitly say no. Yeah, but she was code switching. As an American, that's hard. Yeah. But Baxter didn't get it. Uh, so Daisy says she wants to hear it from McGee's lips. And what Bax- has Daisy ever done that she should talk to McGee? I agree. I'm with you. <sighs> Baxter says, okay, but not to be angry that the situation is not McGee's fault. But Daisy says it's the system's fault and she's part of it. Which, and okay. That makes like, her angry. Yes. But there's a way to go about dismantling the system. So quitting your job and taking up with whatever rebellious sect the homely liberal is with (laughs) would be a way of doing that. Yeah, yeah. Like, take your Mm O-levels and shut up. Yeah. Like, you're also part of that system. Right. Like, I know we're all complicit in the system. I've seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Right. But take your, yeah, take your O-levels and go get an office job with the, you know, Young Communist League or whatever. Julian Fellows doesn't know that communists were a thing. <laughs> That's true. He really doesn't. Oh, didn't, no, they showed up on Manor House. The communists did? Yeah. Did they? Yeah, remember they're having like the village festival or whatever, and then some local loopy communists came up and were like, hey, we're communists. And everybody were was like. Were they in period dress? I think they were. Okay. I mean, I think everybody at the thing was a period dress. I'm just curious if they were actual communists. No, I think they were modern day actual okay. communists, but they, you know, in the spirit of Manor House, agreed to join in. 
In London, Edith tells Rosamond she doesn't understand why the editor won't compromise, and Rosamond says that she wanted a strong editor, but Edith said she didn't want to find herself in a bullring with Attila the Hun. Which, that's not how bullrings work. I don't... Yeah, like... yes, Tom, okay, so you've got the Toreador, which is the bullfighter. Right. Then you've got the Toro, which is the bull, mm-hmm. and then you've got the Attila the Hun, who's in there as like a third... Unpredictable variable. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just to attack any intruders. Have you ever heard of the running of the Huns? <laughs> Rosamond opens up a telegram and says that Mary is coming the next day for a doctor's appointment and shopping. God, Rosamond must get so sick of these people. <laughs> I think they've said as that. I think they have, But, yeah. like, I would be at this point being like, hey, <laughs> y'all need to step off. But then I guess they would be like, oh, remember when you stole all of our vegetables? <laughs> all those times. <laughs> Um, oh man anyway mary's coming for a doctor's appointment and shopping and rosamond suggests that edith could go shopping with mary and he says not bloody (laughs) they talk about rosamond's cook and edith's new flat i don't know why we talk about rosamond's again this show could be a tight 40 yeah if we just took out a bunch of crap yeah baron fellows here here i'm excited for the you know the the i don't know the bravo (laughs) Um, Edith is still weighing the merits of living in London versus living at Downton, and she says she's never lived alone and isn't convinced that she'd be good at it, but Rosamond advises not to get too good at it, yeah. implying that she, Rosamond, has since the passing of good old Marmaduke. Yeah. Um, and- also, Edith, you wouldn't be alone. You'd presumably have that baby and a maid. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and Rosamond, uh, like a nice little random wistful moment there. She's like... I really like... Yeah. Um, oh, what's her name? Samantha... I feel like it'll come to me when I'm not thinking about it. Okay. The actress who plays Rosamond, I have loved her performance yeah. from the beginning. Yeah, agreed. Uh, again, feel free to contradict me. Oh, sure. Not you. Cousins. Yeah, And no, I, I know. know I'm mispronouncing contradict. <laughs> it's a cute thing I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very cute. No, but I just think she does such a good job with a character... I think she takes better care of that character than some of the other actors do. Yeah, yeah. Of better characters. I would agree. And but it may be just because she does have so little screen time. Yeah, I mean, that's a factor. The but... Fellows can't screw it up too badly. <laughs> yeah, that, I think that may be part of it, but still, she's really good. Like, even her role in, you know, Baby Gate, <laughs> she at least, you know, she played it well, d- despite how ridiculous it was. Yeah. In Hughes' parlor, Hughes says that she isn't sure she wants to accept the uh, the invitation to get married in the house. She says, wherever they are in Downton... It would be splendid, but that's not who they are. It is who Carson is, though. Well, that's that like, is uh, you know that is a factor here. I mean, and I feel like they don't ever address it, but they don't ever really. I mean, I understand well, what she's saying is that they aren't members of this great house; mm-hmm. they're not part of the family. But he, you know, he has always associated himself with the family by proxy, right. In a way that she never has, and it just seems to me the kind of thing you might want to really discuss before you get married, right? But I think they do actually. I feel like they do. They don't discuss it directly, but they do address the fact that there's a conflict there later. Um. Anyway, yeah, because Carson's like, "Well, would the schoolhouse be who we are?" And he says, "Well, if you don't want the schoolhouse, that's fine. But yes, any neutral place with their own decorations and flowers, she would like that." Carson's like, so I have to tell him no to Lord Grantham. And Hughes is like, well, I could do it. <laughs> she doesn't care. Uh, but Carson's like, no, it should be me. I feel like he needs to take a hit. Yeah. 
Bates asks Anna about her London trip, and she says that Lady Mary will be doing some shopping. And Mr. Bates says to put her feet up. Anna says she will. Carson says it may do her good. Anna says it won't do any harm. I say, why are we seeing this scene? I would say the only reason is because Bates says to put her feet up, and Anna's like, oh, I will. Oh, right. Yeah. (laughs) See, I don't get puns. I can't make puns (laughs) without great effort. Right. McGee enters the breakfast room, and Lord Grantham asks why since she usually eats breakfast in bed, uh, but she says she has to stop by the church and also hopes to see the Dowager Clarkson and Isabel at the hospital. Lord Grantham asks if that's wise, and McGee says, well, she can at least rely on Isabel, if not Lord Grantham. Mm -hmm. Lord Grantham tries to say something, but McGee ignores him and asks Mary about her train. Lord Grantham then asks Carson if he's broken the news about the reception to Hughes, uh, and he says Carson says that she's hesitant because she feels like she would we would be making a claim to which we have no right, which is not at all what she said. That is almost the opposite of what she said. Right, uh, and she wasn't hesitant. No, she said no. Yeah, no means no, Carson. Yeah. Uh, Mary says that, of course, they have the right, and to leave Hughes to her, they'll have the reception at Downton if it's the last thing Mary does. Also, because you have such a great relationship with Mrs. Hughes, have you ever talked to her? I cannot think of a single instance in which she's talked to Mrs. Hughes. I'm sure it's happened, but I can't think of it. Clarkson shows the Dowager and McGee around the ward, and Isabel... Which, he says he wants to show them around since it's been newly painted. Like, oh, that's going to change everybody's mind. Well, he's hoping they'll get high on the feet <laughs> and the lead. Uh, Isabel comes in and says that she's already gotten the tour, and she's just there so that McGee isn't outnumbered. The Dowager says she's stirring McGee into opposition. Isabel says she's squashing McGee into submission, which doesn't seem like a good phrase to use yeah. when you're trying to get somebody on your side. Yeah. But McGee says that they're both wrong because the facts speak for themselves. The Dowager believes that she, the Dowager, has the true facts. No. Clarkson asks them into his office and says that he wishes he could persuade McGee to stem the tide of change. Always be suspicious if anybody wants you to help stem the tide of change. Yeah. Because the reason that the only thing constant is change is a saying is because it's true. Right. Anyway. Tides in general can't be stemmed. That's the whole thing about tides. Uh, And McGee says as much, which is that the way forward is not to go backward. And the Dowager doesn't understand. Is McGee saying that Dr. Clarkson is a bad doctor? And McGee is sure everyone does their best, (laughs) perhaps thinking of her dead child. Although that wasn't his fault. It wasn't. uh, she's, but oh, you know, at the same time. Yeah. Anyway, there's new treatments and medicines, and shouldn't the village share in them? Clarkson says that he intends to, uh, but McGee points out, as he pointed out earlier, mm. they don't have the money. Yeah. The Dowager asks if she has no pride in what they've achieved, but McGee doesn't think pride comes into it, uh, which is really the fundamental disagreement here. Yeah. Uh, the Dowager says that she and Clarkson will fight until the last ditch and Clarkson just wants what's best for the village. McGee says they at least have that in common and heads out. And then Isabel follows saying they must leave the other two to gnash their teeth alone. Clarkson's disappointed. He says that McGee would have made a powerful ally, but the Dowager hopes he's not implying that McGee would be more powerful than her. Right. Dot, dot, dot. Which is really, you know, the whole subtext of this that I feel like gets undersold and maybe it gets more into it in later episodes. I don't remember. But, the you know, the fact is McGee is more powerful than the Dowager. And she's, like, basically, you know, not in a totally confrontational way, but she's basically using that. Yeah. I mean, she is the sitting countess. Right. Yeah. And she's, you know. Not an idiot. She's like, you have no power over me. <laughs> I wish the Dowager wore more cod pieces and did more contact juggling. <laughs> 
<laughs> At Pig Farm, Lord Grantham's talking to Pigman, who asks why Edith didn't stop them from bringing Marigold, and Lord Grantham just says that she was away. He asks where Mrs. Pigman is, and Pigman says, picking up the children, and that they're all right, they've got things under control. Uh, Lord Grantham says that McGee is worried that Mrs. Pigman can't stand the, you know, nearness of Marigold. But Pigman asks not to be pushed out. They've been there since before Waterloo. Lord Grantham says he's not pushing anyone. He wants Edith and Marigold and Mrs. Pigman to all be happy. And Pigman rather implausibly claims that he can manage Mrs. Pigman. You have been failing to manage Mrs. Pigman for the better part of, like, a year and some days? Yeah. Like, come on, dude. Yeah. You are incapable of being honest with your wife. Yeah. Because, okay, if you're going to manage her, what you need to say is, hey... This is the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. It sucks. I'm sorry that you feel bad about it. Like, you and Edith obviously can't stand each other. Mm-hmm. It's like this horrible breakup, essentially, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about a baby. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, we work for these people. Yeah. And you need to get your shit together mm-hmm. so that we can still be their pig man and wife. Yeah. <laughs> I now pronounce you <laughs> pig man and wife. <laughs> In the Carson cave, Mrs. Hughes enters and asks how Lord Grantham took the refusal. And Carson's silence speaks volumes. Yeah. He says that it was difficult and that Lady Mary feels it should be there. And Mrs. Hughes says, heaven forfend, they contradict the blessed Lady Mary. Which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I always love it when Mrs. Hughes shit talks. Ma- she's the only person. Because mm-hmm. even Edith, like, gives Mary this power. But yeah. But she's like, you ain't shit. Right. Yeah. Um... Yeah. Oh, leave Mrs. Hughes to me, Mary. Whatever. Carson says that that's not like her to be shit-talking Lady Mary. And I'm like, well, not that much in your presence. Right. But, uh, Mrs. Hughes says she wants her own wedding in her own way. Carson says that it's his wedding, too. But Mrs. Hughes says she's the bride, and they'll be doing it Carson's way for the next 30 years, which seems optimistic. Yeah. Uh, but the wedding day is hers. Yeah. And that's what I was getting about that earlier. It's that it's not so much... You know, I think to an extent, she's kind of acknowledging that, yes, Carson would rather have it there, but she's saying that she doesn't care. Yeah. That it's her wedding. I'm just saying, like, for the future, because it's not like they resolve that part of it. Right. They don't resolve the fact that he is always going to be aspiring to a level of existence that neither of them will ever achieve. Yeah. You know? I don't know. I mean, except that, you know, I feel like Carson's Carson's topped out at Butler, you know, decades ago, and he knows that. So I don't know. But I, I mean, yeah, there's, look, there's, their communication is not at the level we recommend. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad we resolved that conflict amongst ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Modeling excellent behavior <laughs> for the Carson Hughes wedding. Indeed. Uh, we see McGee sewing. Uh, Baxter asks- Those cat pillows don't <laughs> just make themselves. They really don't. Baxter asks if Daisy might have a word, and McGee sighs and accepts. So Daisy comes in, and McGee says that she is happy to see Daisy, but there is nothing more she can do. Daisy says that she can't bear it, it being all her fault, and McGee says it's not her fault. Mr. Henderson was angry, but he wouldn't change his plans just for that, and they are planning to take a lot of the estate in hand. Um, and that's all probably true. Like, she didn't help anything, but Mason was probably doomed from the start. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to say nothing of the fact he didn't really live there in the first place. <laughs> right, that's a good point, too. Daisy says that old Mr. Mason's not young, hence the name. Um, but McGee says that Sir John will help him, 
Daisy says that he's, you know, a hard worker. Any estate would be lucky to have him. McGee asks if he would be ready to start anew at his age. And Daisy asks if McGee has thought of something. And McGee says, probably not, but maybe. And she will let Daisy know if anything comes of it. And uh, this is like, yeah, this is like in The Simpsons when they're in that bowling tournament. And Marge is like, maybe Mr. Burns will have the best game of his life and you guys will win. And he's like, so we're definitely going to win? That's how Daisy reacts to this news. Yes, it is. That's all. In London, a doctor tells Anna that she suffers from cervical incompetence. (laughs) Which I know is a real thing. And I'm sorry if any of you out there have it because that's still a diagnosis. But it makes me laugh. It's like the Molesley of cervixes. Uh, so what it means is that the neck of the womb is weak, mm-hmm. resulting in miscarriages after three or four months. So baby, basically, baby B, <laughs> basically the baby is too big and heavy to be contained. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's unlucky, he says, but not unusual. And the treatment is cervical circlage, inserting a large stitch into the cervix, which works in many cases. It's an outpatient procedure. And Anna says that he's given her a lot to think about. And he leaves it to Anna to get in touch if and when she gets pregnant. Yeah. And I, I looked this up. I believe this is essentially the treatment is essentially unchanged. That That's still the... I mean, it seems pretty basic. Right. Like, yeah. Like, unsurprisingly, but yeah. In bed, Lord Grantham says the pig man won't leave, and McGee doesn't think the problem will go away. Uh, Lord Grantham mentions that Edith's editor uh, still sucks, <laughs> and uh, that Edith is coming back on the same train as Mary, and McGee says, heavens to Betsy. Uh, but she is glad that Mary will have time to prepare the pigs for the fat stock what show. What is she going to do with <laughs> the pigs? Like, give them makeovers? <laughs> <laughs> They're beautiful just the way they are. <laughs> Lord Grantham says that these things remind the farming community that they're all on the same side. You're not. <laughs> right. McGee wishes that he would convince... Him saying that is as stupid as what Daisy <laughs> said about them. You're right. McGee wishes that Lord Grantham would convince the Dowager that they're on the same side, but he says the law doesn't apply to the Dowager Countess. Speaking of marriages, yes. like this would upset me no end uh-huh. and i know it's an issue that like my parents have had where like my dad was like what are you gonna do it's my mom mm-hmm. and it's like i'm your wife man yeah like i'm the one you choose yeah like that's to me just the rule i understand uh you i've never had any problems with but <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying like no i know and he's just it's the fact that he's never chosen and he's at this age mm-hmm. is crazy to yeah me. yeah in the servants' hall, Carson announces that it's the day of the fat stock show <laughs> and all are free to visit the fat stock. Woo. Thomas doesn't think he'll bother, which is a good choice. <laughs> um, Anna says he should come and then is summoned to Lady Mary and Bates tells her as she goes that she's been bouncy since London. <laughs> it's my new cervix, Mr. Bates. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bouncy one. I've got a spring in my cervix. <laughs> Uh, Mosley asks how long they can stay, and Thomas volunteers to serve tea, but Carson turns him down for no reason At than all. just being a dick. Yeah. And tells Andy and Mosley to be back by 4.15. They don't want to serve tea. Thomas, anyway. Also, why doesn't Mosley go by his first name? Right. Have we, I feel like I maybe we've discussed this before. he used to be a valet. Right. And they just never got around to I guess it? not, because he's, cause he's not a valid But, anymore. I mean, Thomas used to be Thomas, and now he's Mr. Barrow. Yeah, well, because he What's got... What's Mr. Mosley's first name? 
I know it's come up. It's something absurd. It, no, I'm pretty sure it's a comical first name. Yeah. I feel like it maybe came up because it was a comical first name, and they were like, we don't want to call him that. Let's just stick with Molesley. Possibly. That may or may not be true. We can look that up. Yeah. Thomas asks when Carson needs him, and Carson says, when indeed. Again, like, is he fired or is he not fired? Right. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it really doesn't. <clears throat> Fat stock show. Woo! Sheep, pigs, judges looking at sheeps and pigs. <laughs> Marigold saying moo. Uh, even though, are there cows there? There are cows. Okay, yeah. I was like, wait a minute. Is she okay? <laughs> right. No, she, she <laughs> What was... did they teach her on that farm? <laughs> Mrs. Pigman arrives and Pigman greets her and then she sees Marigold and is like stricken. And she's like, oh, so they're all came. And Mr. Pickman is like, yeah, you knew they would all be here. They're their pigs. <laughs> That's right. We see Andy bowling and uh, Thomas asks if he wants to see Mary show her pigs. Andy says in a minute and then he throws a gutter ball. <laughs> Thomas offers to give him some bowling tips, but Andy says, no, nope, it's not my game and scurries away. Possibly to go look at the woods. <laughs> Possibly. Patmore says that Thomas isn't a quick learner. He says he doesn't know what she means. Patmore says to just be sensible, and Thomas asks if it occurs to her that she might be wrong, uh, and then he bowls a strike. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Maybe he could be a professional bowler. Maybe so. Which brings us to the second of our recurring segments. Tom repeats history with our resident Skittles savant, Tom. That's right. So I was originally going to try to put something together about fat stock shows and agricultural shows in general, <laughs> but I just could not find anything like any good. Like I found this really amusingly weird story on cattle.com, the site about cows, <laughs> dot, 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 and other stuff. Um, what other stuff? I don't know. I only read this one article. And then I'm like on the website of Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Wessex. What? I have no idea who that is. Yeah. Is it baby Charlotte? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Although she'd gone to, like, church at Sandringham or something. I don't know. But she, like, sponsors some... Like, recently? I don't know. She's uh, she's some HRH that sponsors some, like, fat stock shows or something. I wow. don't even know. I don't know how I got there. Like, it was just a mess. So, <laughs> I decided to switch my focus to bowling. Now, this turned out to be a delight. Because this... <laughs> This bowling article on Wikipedia is A, terrible, but B, perfect for this sort of thing, because it is just a long list of semi-related facts. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, like hanging out with that weird kid in your class who just had like read a whole thing about bowling and brought it up at like weird moments, aka me with every musical <laughs> ever yeah. in my childhood. But, like, you know, the first paragraph that's, like, just sort of listing all the different kinds of bowling is all fine. But then the history of bowling section is, again, just vaguely chronological, just whatever occurred to this person. Um, you know, like, and it goes back to ancient Egypt. There's, like, bowling fossils from, like, 3,200 years ago, all this sort wow, of thing. Wow, bowling fossils. Yeah. Where's my Jurassic Park about that? <laughs> Jurassic Bowl. <laughs> Uh, in about the year 400, bowling began in Germany as a religious ritual to cleanse oneself from sin by rolling a rock into a club representing the heathen. So there's the rock that. or the club. I believe the club represented the heathen. Okay. So I don't know, like cleansing oneself from sin or just killing heathens. Like I feel like those are two separate things. Really, I think they're the same. Okay. No, that's well. <laughs> many people agree. Uh, there were a lot of laws passed about it in the Middle Ages. Uh, it was, for example, it was 
banned in 1366 in England because it was a distraction from archery practice, which was, of course, important to, like, national defense and everything. Um, That's, like, how they banned pinball machines for such a long time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've got more stories. Um <laughs> Uh, there was a law in effect from 1541 through 1845, which prohibited workers from bowling except on Christmas, and then only in their master's home and in his presence. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There was a, that had to be a specific law, apparently. I bet they had bowling speakeasies. <laughs> yeah. There's <laughs> some king who is only referred to in this paragraph as he acquired Whitehall Palace and put a bowling alley in it, but it doesn't... <laughs> That's a completely un... It, does it say that this article has issues? <laughs> it doesn't. Oh my because God. it really does. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should learn to use Wikipedia and complain. Yeah. It was actually Martin Luther that set the number of pins, which up until then had varied from 3 to 17. He set it to 9, which became pretty standardized. <sighs> but uh, bold... Wow. What a bold dude. <laughs> what a thing to be remembered for. Yeah. That was pretty much it, really. Yeah. That's all Martin Luther ever did. Nine <laughs> pins. <laughs> yeah. A bunch of stuff. It was, you know, came over to America mostly through Dutch immigrants, was first mentioned in Rip Van Winkle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It sure was. Boy, that yeah. guy fell asleep, didn't he? Yeah. Okay. Here's the one. I like this. In 1841, the state of Connecticut banned nine pin bowling to stop gambling, causing 10 pin bowling to be created. So that's, that's why 10 pin is standard in America because Connecticut outlawed nine pin bowling and they're like, so we'll just add a pin. And everybody was like, yeah, we're good with that. <laughs> we love bowling. <laughs> ah, well, that also explains why you can play nine pin bowling in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the modern sort of scoring and everything for 10 pin was established in 1895. Uh, the first champion was Jimmy Smith. Uh, but then in 1927, Mrs. Floretta Doty McCutcheon defeated Smith in an exhibition match, comma, founding a school that taught 500,000 women how to bowl. The greatest feminist <laughs> issue of the day. Right. But it's, you don't have to have balls to throw a ball. <laughs> and just that that sentence implies that as soon as she won, pff, the school, like, popped into existence because a woman had beaten a man at bowling. That's how things work. Apparently When a so. woman beats a man at something, a whole school coughs up. <laughs> yeah, so I think those were the main things in here. But what they were playing was actually not... Um, oh, yeah, there is one more thing. The, the golden, um, about 1950, the golden age of 10-pin bowling began, in which professional bowlers made salaries rivaling those of baseball, football, and hockey players. It ended in the late 1979s. <laughs> I think you mean the late 1979's pins. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's the main bowling article. There's also an article on Skittles, which is what they were actually playing, which is, it's also a bit disorganized, but only because Skittles means like a million different things. Uh, yeah, and taste the rainbow. <laughs> right. Exactly. There are a rainbow of rules of Skittles. <laughs> um, and they're also like have, various variants all throughout england apparently uh and so like for example there's one that's the great you say it's like the cornhole of england uh, except cornhole i think is more standardized yeah but i feel like it's a little different yeah you may be right uh i would say so yeah just way older and more english um so uh, also known as old english skittles the greater london version uses nine pins and a cheese the cheese is thrown at the pins using a swinging motion while stepping forward. A cheese. Yeah. As in a cheese. 
made out of cow's milk. Well, it turns out, many paragraphs later, you find out, no, it's just a wooden disc that they call a cheese. What a bunch of jerks. Because <laughs> I was excited. I was like, is that really how it goes? Because I'm in. Uh, it also says that knocking down all the pins at once is known as a florer and is highly respected. The last time a player is known to have thrown three floors in succession was in 1960. Really? Yeah. It doesn't seem like it would be that hard. <laughs> you wouldn't think. Uh, but yeah. So basically, you know, the Skittles that Thomas and Andy are playing there is, you know, essentially nine pin bowling and it looks like not, not too different. But there are a million kinds of Skittles that, uh, you could play. It's like, I was kind of surprised. Cool. Well, I guess yeah. I have to get you a skill set for your next birthday. I had one as a child that was like a whole different setup because its deal was, and this was definitely like out of a, you know, meant for gambling, at least in its original form, because it would like spin a top mm-hmm. and it would like knock or like sort of spin around in this box and you would, you know, you hope it would knock down all the pins, but it was, you know, pretty random whether yeah. it would or not. I had a game called Battling Tops. Where tops would battle. Yeah, I had I had one called Spin Bots that was the same, <laughs> same general principle. Well, but that for- one was super like that one we got at like odd lots and then been super remaindered. So there was like this whole mythology on the back, but we only got the two that we got, and then it was you know out of print. And we could never like build out our collection, which I would have been I you know as a nine year old I was like I want more Spin Bots, and I was like these may be the only Spin Bots in the world at this point. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Sorry. So you only had toys that were popular in the 1890s and also that barely existed. That is generally true, yeah. I'm sad for you. Uh, you know, they were fun. I had a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle figurine, at least. We had some of those. We had some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We had some He-Men. So those were okay. our, yeah. Well, thank you for this trip down memory lane. Sure. And, and thank you for repeating history. Yeah, and this trip down bowling lane. <laughs> Back to the thing. <laughs> sure. Mr. Finch compliments Mary's pigmanship. <laughs> Daisy says that it's funny to see her in with the pigs. Yeah. Uh, Mason says it does Lady Mary proud. Baxter agrees. Molesley hopes that things are settling down with Mr. Mason. And Mason says more like break apart. Molesley says Daisy can hardly work because she's so upset. But Mason says not to let worry put her off, which she doesn't really seem like she's not working that hard. Right. Uh, we cut to Mrs. Pigman staring at Marigold. Murdy compliments Lady Mary. She's, he says he's there to support his tenant. And they discuss the hospital situation. Mary hoped that his working with Isabel was a sign of a thaw on her part. But Murdy says her mind is made up. And Mary says that women can always change their minds. Yeah. Uh, and we see Lord Grantham greeting Mrs. Pigman. Carson asks Hughes what else she'd like to do as they're, you know, wandering the, the grounds. Uh, and she says what, what she'd like to do is get this business sorted. Carson says it is sorted. It means a lot to Mary and the family, and he can't see why they shouldn't be married there. It's not like they have family nearby or a place that is special to them. And Downton means much more to him than the school. So she doesn't agree. Right. But they just, like, leave it there. Yeah. So... Yeah. Huh. I'd forgotten that that scene happened. Where will the Carson Hughes wedding <laughs> take place? Uh, some judge says it's time to announce best in show. Marigold wanders off as first prize is awarded to Golden Empress of Downton Abbey. Mm -hmm. As if there was any question. Right. Uh, there's applause. Then Mrs. Hughes asks Edith where Marigold is. I don't know why Mrs. Hughes knows or cares. (laughs) Shouldn't Nanny be there? Yeah. Anyway. 
There is commotion. Lord Grantham mentions to Pigman that Mrs. Pigman was nearby when Marigold disappeared and begins organizing the search. Various people look around and Edith is panicking. I mean, it's a village. Come on. She cannot have gotten that far. I understand. But, you know, it's her kid. It's missing. Like, like, Edith is panicking, yeah, but I'm, you know, sympathetic. Yeah. Okay. Well, then you're in charge of finding missing children. (laughs) Oh, I'll be a wreck. (laughs) (laughs) McGee tries to reassure Edith and Pigman knows where they'll find her. Because Mrs. Pigman has gone with the truck. Yeah. And Lord Grantham and some others walk up. Edith says they've had a message that Mrs. Pigman took her home to be out of harm's way, uh, which is a pretty transparent lie. It is. But she only had like three seconds. Lord Grantham says he'll get the car. Can he drive now? <laughs> uh, Anna explains to Mary, and Mary wonders why Mrs. Pigman would do that. That's an excellent question, Mary. Yes. So we see a fairly tense car ride. Uh, at Pig Farm, Pigman wants to go in alone, and Lord Grantham backs him up on that. Inside, Mrs. Pigman is holding Marigold, and she says that Marigold was bored, and they weren't paying attention to her. Uh, and I mean, how could you with all these pigs around? Oh, that's right. She's like, I pay attention to her with all these pigs around every day. <laughs> it's true, but she's, you know, she's, she's accustomed to pigs. She's dead to their beauty. <laughs> Pigman asks why she brought Marigold to their house, and she says that this is Marigold's home, and it repeats that none of them were looking after her. Pigman says to give Marigold to him, and she asks if he's angry when she just wanted to hold her close and love her. Pigman says that he's not angry, but to hand over the baby. And so she does, and Pigman takes her to eat. Where's their other kids? They, uh, you know, they got laid off. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) The pigs ate them. (laughs) Every generation. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so yeah, he takes Marigold to Edith as Mrs. Pigman watches through the window. And then Pigman says he'll start looking for another tenancy in the morning. Uh, that's, that's it. They, he's, you know, nothing else to be said about it apparently. They can't, any, well, anyway. Lord Grantham says to let him know if there's anything that Pigman needs, although it's a poor return for all that they've done for them and their pigs. Pigman says that they forgot about emotion when they made their plan. Much like Baron Fellows. Yeah. And so the two of them have a manly handshake and part ways. And Lord Grantham tells McGee and Edith. And McGee is like, well, good. And ugh. it's a very unsatisfactory end yeah, to this plot line. It is. Like, even with the accuracy of the adoption laws. <laughs> right. But it's like, why couldn't Mrs. Pigman and Edith come to some kind of understanding at right. that point? Because Mrs. Pigman is not upper class, and though so she has wild, uncontrollable emotions and desires. That's And actions. Yeah, that's why. Unlike Edith, who only stole that baby twice. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that is the end of the episode, which mm-hmm. means it is time for the Abbey Awards. Woo. First up, we have Worst Decision, which goes to... Mrs. Pigman. Yeah. yeah. Although we would like to not blame her lower class inclinations. Right. It is a really bad move yeah. to steal that baby back. Yeah. No, like plenty of people could make such a bad decision. It's just that on this show, it's always the lower class people yeah. that do it. But it was... Yeah. Come on, Mrs. Pigman. How did you think that was going to end? Really? Next up, we have Best Evasion. And that goes to Carson. Yeah. Uh, who, at no point like confirms the location of the wedding reception right uh so lower class people can also evade successfully yeah that's true they bob and weave (laughs) next we have worst overbite and that goes to the homophobic butler whose name we do not know (laughs) right yeah i you know honestly it it seems like this episode and the last one nobody in the main cast is that overbitey yeah not much yeah like 
you know, I feel like, you know, Lord Grantham here and there a little bit or, you know, sometimes, but not. not They're all just one big, happy, tolerant family. (laughs) Yeah. Next up, we have the Gibson Girl Award. Which we're awarding to Lady Mary after a very poor showing last week. I really liked her, like, white sweater that she was wearing in the scene with uh, Mr. Finch. Mm -hmm. She had a nice white evening dress and a much better nightgown. Yeah. This time around. It was a very muted color palette Mm -hmm. all around in the costumes this episode. And not generally, and generally less successful than last week. Uh, you know, the cast I as agree. a whole. Yeah, I thought this was a much less flashy episode yeah. in terms yeah. of the clothes. Right. So yeah. uh, that brings us to the backy, and that goes to McGee. Pretty she, much on the strength of her coats at the pig farm. At the pig farm, but then also later you she know had that's a similar true. Coat. You're right, but she's essentially wearing the 1925 equivalent of slankets. <laughs> yes, goes outside. Yeah, uh, and we don't understand why. I'm like, are you playing the cowardly lion? <laughs> A La Jolla Playhouse production of The Wiz. Like, right. why are you wearing that? Yeah, like you're you're rushing the poncho trend by like decades. It's and uh, yeah, it's yeah. not great. Yeah. So McGee, get your shit together. <laughs> That's right. Next up, we have the award for cutest baby. Cutest baby goes to Marigold for saying moo. Yeah, that was pretty much the reason, yes. and getting stolen, I suppose. Yeah, but I mean, no, mainly like, the moo. Yeah, but I think we also got to give her a little. She was in it a lot. She was. She was yeah. in it way more than George. Yeah, that's a good so, point. Yeah, just sheerly for being there, <laughs> right? Even though she kind of still looks like an alien. <laughs> and then finally, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths. And we're going with a two in this one. She only had about two scenes. Yeah. She wasn't being very zingy. Yeah. Uh, and wasn't being effective. No, she wasn't. Correct. Yeah, she was She was kind of blustering to no avail in this one a bit. Anytime so. when she blusters to no avail, we don't like it. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, start availing better. <laughs> That's in right. In the next episode, Mags. Here, here. Let's get it. Let's yeah. get it. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our recap. So until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs. Luncheon out. <laughs>